Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and this past week, I joined legendary West Virginia radio broadcaster Howard Monroe on his show to talk about what happened in the big elections in New Jersey and Virginia last week. Here's Howard Monroe. We have. These are red holiday cups. They look very Christmassy, but they don't say Christmas. That could be a problem. Uh, they look like packages almost. They've got ribbons and bows and so on. Very festive. We'll see the pictures of them. Uh, but we will see if the lack of the word Christmas is there or if somebody's going to find Satan in these little logo or something. Starbucks cups are coming out, and that could be Santa. What I found fascinating yesterday was I got an email from an email. I guess you'd call it a piece of news. He was talking about the critical race theory, which in my mind is nothing more than regrettably medieval, and there is something about critical race theory talking behind them. But when they talk about David and Rick, when he talks about critical race theory, they seem to be the teaching of whole aspect of American history, which includes slavery, which does include racism, and the fact that they were not So they call it critical race theory, and it's a bad thing. How bad is it? Well, this, this group says that uh, critical race theory is not just bad, it's satanic. It's satanic. It's the Satan himself has brought critical race theory to our world, and that now the world will go, both of them will go to hell and we don't stop this teaching of critical race theory uh, because it is a tool of Satan. I guess I should say that. I don't even talk about Satan because I'm going to say God helped to bring critical race theory. There's, there's something terrible about it. I'm not sure what could it be. What could it be? He's not safe, he's a good guy, he's a political consultant, a consultant, a podcaster, an all-round good guy. Matt Robinson, Matt, good morning, sir. Good morning. So, are you a fan of Weird Al Yankovic? Weird Al Yankovic had the greatest tweet in the history of tweets, in which, remember there was a controversy a few years ago, where the little symbol on the Starbucks cup you know, that they say is some kind of like an earth goddess. And people thought that it was, you know, it, it was somehow connected to something evil. They, they misread it. So Weird Al put out a picture that was a just a, a, a cup, a coffee cup, with like a horned devil on it that said, Hail Satan. And he said, well, now Starbucks has just gone too far. <laughs> Starbucks, they can't kind of break on I haven't heard anything about those things cups. So I can see they don't have the word Christmas on it, so that's going to get them some trouble. Well, can I give you a hot take here? Uh, I've got a hot take for you. Forget politics for a second. Isn't Starbucks just crappy coffee? 
I mean, they somehow they somehow fooled the rule, the world into into accepting the idea that we're going to serve you burnt coffee and you're going to pay a lot for it, and that's good. Like, am I taking crazy pills here? What do West Virginians think about burnt coffee from Starbucks? Don't you have honest American coffee there? Yeah, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's un-American. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's sort of a there's a good news and a bad news version of this for Democrats. For the for the good news version, well, I don't know. Maybe this is more bad news. It, so I don't know if you're a fan of Russian literature. My wife tells me that I make too many references to things that uh, most people are are not uh, fans of. But are are you a fan of Russian literature? <laughs> I I personally uh, am not, but. I, I am a big fan of what the writer Jared Diamond calls the Anna Karenina principle, which is drawing on a quote from the novel Anna Karenina. Happy families are all the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So if there's, if there's kind of a double-edged sword to Tuesday's results, it's that every unhappy result for Democrats was sort of unhappy in its own way. If you look at Virginia... What happened there? Well, first of all, it, there was a lot of critical race theory, which you were talking about a second ago, a lot of focus on schools, education, mask mandates in schools, and Terry McCollum's gaffe, where he said, we don't want parents telling schools how to educate kids. Look, as a Democrat, I'm a parent of elementary school-age kids. I would not want to hear my future governor say that. I feel strongly about that. That would turn me off. So... You know, in a way, it, it should it, we should avoid overreading, overconnecting dots when we look across Virginia and New Jersey because we were idiosyncratic. They each had their own problems. Now, the bad news is they still both had similar, similarly bad results, and you, you saw this with legislative candidates in both states for for that Virginia House of Delegates. They outperformed. The 2020 Biden versus Trump margin between Democrats and Republicans by 12 points. And in New Jersey, the legislative candidates outperformed the 2020 margin by 11 points. Very, very similar. By the way, those numbers are courtesy of the incomparable Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report. Just an absolute must follow on Twitter. And so, you know, I agree with you. I agree with your point that Terry McAuliffe did not do himself favors here in the way he ran the race, certainly not with that gaffe about parents and, and schools. I do think that there's sort of a common thread here, which is, look, it's just a bad political environment for Democrats. That's that's what's going on everywhere. But yeah, McAuliffe didn't, didn't position himself in the best possible way. I understand the theory. The theory was every good story needs a villain. The best villain we have for Democrats is Donald Trump. Let's run against Donald Trump. It's hard to run against Duncan. He's nice-looking. He's a basketball star. He's 6'7". He has, you know, sweater vests. I mean, you know, he, he's a much more scary figure than Donald Trump. Let's run against Donald Trump. And the other thing that McAuliffe did, by the way, was he may have overlearned the lessons of California. Now, you and I talked about California on your show about six weeks ago. And one of the lessons of California was there – the race in that recall election for governor, that race was all about COVID, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. And so McCulloch looked at the result there and said, huh, middle-class voters, suburban voters, they like this COVID-fighting stuff. I'm going to lean on that. And that may have been a bit of a miscalculation because that's not where voters' heads are at right now. They're much more focused on others.
Yeah, a lot of analysts are pointing to him. I mean, there have been suggestions, hey, he should run for president, or hey, he seems to be the, the template that other Republicans should follow over the next couple of years of how to wink and nod at base Trump voters by saying, oh, I'm not sure if I accept the election results of 2020, maybe it was rigged. But you don't broadcast it. You don't shout that out. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And for Youngkin, he ended the race with 52 favorability, 52% favorability, 44% unfavorability. So that just goes to your, your earlier point that McAuliffe didn't really manage to land a glove on him. He ended up looking kind of favorable, kind of positive, and he did manage to, to walk that line. He didn't seem like a scary Trump type, and he held it together. He talked to the Trump base, and he didn't scare off the kinds of independent voters who he, you know, that, that's, that's where the margin is in races these days. And, I mean, that, that does seem to be sort of the winning template, and it has, to, it has to be sort of a warning sign for Democrats. They have to figure that out. They can't simply run against Donald Trump when he's not actually on the ballot. with you there. I think that you're right that the overall atmosphere of it's not clear what Democrats in Washington are doing. Democrats haven't been able to control their own message, their own narrative, and you see it in the Build Back Better Bill. I had a guest on the Great Ideas podcast who's an expert in economics, policy, and really called the shot for Democrats on what needed to end up in the Build Back Better bill. Uh, so people should check out the Great Ideas podcast. And is, is, is this guy named uh, Ben Ritz. And what he said is, look, if, if Democrats had just boiled all this down and said, all we want to do is do a bill that's about kids and climate, kids and climate, that would have been something that voters could understand. And maybe 
they would have forgiven some of the disarray and the back and forth and the confusion because they would have understand, all right, what Democrats are focusing on is the future, kids and climate. But instead, we, we have had a little bit of a mess. Now, the game that's been played in Washington in kind of Democratic insider circles over the last 36 hours has been progressives blaming centrists, Manchin, Cinema, for kind of gumming up the works and not allowing them to be bolder on, on policy, and centrists blaming progressives and saying, you guys have been just grabbing everything in sight at the candy store and talking about all this wildly progressive stuff that's turning off voters and making us look like we're in disarray. I just want to I just want to bring home a point about this. I think that that you're right that the disarray is not helpful. But I also think that where progressives go wrong here is that it's not like passing the stuff that they wanted to pass would have actually helped, would have actually excited the progressive base. That was not the problem here. In, in New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy, what did he do in the last four years? He raised the minimum wage. He made earned sick leave mandatory. He boosted funding for pre-K schools. He made community college free to those who can't afford it. And he still lost ground, especially in the suburbs. This is a point from the writer Leonard Court, by the way. And so it's not like if Democrats in Washington had done all those things on the liberal wish list, it would have actually solved their political problems. Democratic turnout was not the problem here. Terry McAuliffe ended up 200,000 votes ahead of what the last governor in Virginia, Ralph Northam, got in 2017. Joe Murphy already got the same number of votes in 2017 with votes still being cast as of yesterday. Democratic turnout exciting the base was not the problem here. The problem was a fired up, angry Republican base and the inability to win voters in the center. Well, it's it's tricky. I've actually been in this circumstance before. I mean, Democrats right now are, who have been around a little while, like me, are really reliving 2009 into 2010. And at the time, I was working for a U.S. Senate candidate, and it was it was bad because Democrats were in the position of telling voters, "No, things are getting better. Things are going to get better." Who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? And that's just that's just not an awesome place to be. The other thing that happened at the time that has echoes now today as we head into 2022 is we were in a position where you couldn't run away from Obama. You were tied to Obama. So the advice for Democrats, don't think that you're going to run away from Biden and win. You are kind of tied to him. So rule number one, when you're in a hole, is stop digging. And so the very first thing that Democrats need to do is just clear the decks. It's not a silver bullet, as I was just saying, to pass the Build Back Better agenda and the infrastructure bill. But stop digging. Stop the narrative of disarray. Start being clear about what you've actually done. Number two, 
you got to sort of cross your fingers or pray or, or whatever is, is your given persuasion that things turn around in the fourth quarter of this year and going into the spring of next year. That's what economists are predicting. We had a, a very strong 6% GDP growth in the second quarter of 2021. We had a slowdown in the third quarter because of supply chain issues, down to 2% GDP growth. But economists believe that, that these issues are going to start to work through, that inflation is going to ease off for all kinds of complicated reasons we can get into another time. So you've got to cross your fingers that those things begin to catch up. And number three, number three, you've got to refine your message and start speaking with one voice. And, yes, you have to call out the, the Trump boogeyman, the right-wing boogeyman. You have to have a villain. But, you know, you also have to have – some consistency about your economic message and not get pulled into kind of the trap of this is a fight about critical race theory, defund the police and, and mandates. That's the playbook that may have worked for you in previous races. It's not going to work this time. Clear, consistent message. Go on offense. And, you know, you just, you just got to cross your fingers that President Biden's approval rating starts creeping up to the high 40s again by the time we're, we're looking at the election a year from now. Uh, right now, the odds are not very good. The average loss of seats in the U.S. House when the president of that party is under 50% approval rating is 37. Democrats have a five-seat margin in the U.S. House right now. And again, average loss of seats is 37. Another point from, from Dave Wasserman is that if you look at the margins that were achieved in legislative races in Virginia and New Jersey this week, and you applied those same margins of improvement to Republicans in 2022, Republicans would win between 45 and 50 seats in the U.S. House. So, again, history and current political climate suggests that it is a very tall mountain to climb for Democrats. One other factor there, gerrymandering. It's happening right now. It's happening in New Hampshire, where I'm on the air on WKXL, where Republicans in the legislature just released a map that gerrymandered. The first congressional seat has become really tough. It's gone from a coin flip to really tough for the Democrat who holds it. And I'm not sure that he's going to want to defend that seat. That's probably going to be true of a lot of these gerrymandered seats. The Senate, also tough. The map is a little bit better for Democrats, but the political analyst David Shore has estimated, based on his modeling, that even if Democrats nationwide get 51% of the votes, meaning they get an absolute majority of the votes, they have no better than a 50-50 shot of holding the Senate. So the odds are very much against Democrats as of right now. Thank you. 